0: You know, one, one thing that I really uh, enjoy reading about is leadership, right? Um, it's fascinating to me how there can be one person uh, who can really make or break a company. Uh, a lot of times, one person or one leader who can make or break a nation. Uh, and a lot of times, one leader who can make or break a church, um, and i was always really interested in seeing what makes someone else want to follow someone else right i was always interested in, in what makes a great leader like is it charisma you know is it is it that he's funny is it that he's really visionary is it what is that thing what is that intangible thing that wants other people to follow someone else right and that, that was something i was always kind of I don't know, I've always been interested in. You know, research has shown that there are actually a lot of different reasons why there's something called a great leader. You know, a great leader, they do need vision. They need to know where they go, they need to know where they're going, and they need to be able to bring people forth with them. A great leader also needs to be able to implement a system, And that system needs to be able to organically grow other people as well. A great leader is able to bring peace in the midst of arguments. A lot of times he's able to be that peacemaker. So these are some of the reasons, these are some of the things of a great leader. In seminary, when I was in seminary, I read so many Christian leadership books. Um, I'd check them out of the library, I would take copious notes, I'd close the book, and then I'd burn it, right? Or, I'm sorry, that was a joke. Uh, So for me, I was supposed to be a pastor, right? And for me, I knew that for pastors, you were technically the leader of the church, And so for me, when I would read these Christian leadership books and they would talk about all of these different things that you would need to do, I would become so overwhelmed. How am I supposed to ever live up to that type of lifestyle, to that type of leader? And so for me, I would get so overwhelmed and I would keep on reading. I would try to find this magic formula, but there was no magic formula you see, as I was reading and as I was studying, I came across this one book that actually really changed the way I thought about ministry. And subsequently, it honestly changed the way that I viewed God. I was reading this biography of uh, this Korean uh, pastor, uh, and they were talking about how he would have weekly meetings with all of the pastors uh, in that church. And so he would go one by one and just ask them, like, how is ministry doing? How, how is your part that you're, be, that you're taking care of? He would go one by one. And that church was a mega church. It was huge. But they said that in 30 years of his ministry there, he never once asked them about the numbers, that in 30 years there, he never once in those weekly meetings ever asked why their ministry was getting smaller, or why their ministry was getting bigger, or anything like that. He never asked them about the amount of people. In fact, even when the church was shrinking, even when the church was growing, he would always be happy. He would be fine. But they said that there would be one reason why he would get upset. He said that th- they said that there was one reason why he would get really, really angry, And they said that the only time that he would get angry was when something happened to one of the members of the church and none of the pastors knew about it. That when there was an accident or when there was an incident or when something happened to one of the members of that church and he asked the other pastors and none of the pastors knew that that thing had happened to the member. He would get furious. And he would say, what are we doing? Are, you, are we really called into ministry? Are we really meant to be pastors? And he would be so upset. And as I was reading that, I don't know, for some reason, my heart became like so full. And in that moment, I felt like I could follow that one pastor anywhere. You know, for me, I didn't know his vision I didn't know how he structured the church. I didn't know how he did anything really else, but I wanted to follow him because I knew, I knew that he loved his people. You see, that pastor's name was, was John Oak, and he was a pastor of a church called Sarang교회, or Sarang Church. You see, he passed away nine years ago. He actually passed away nine years ago, nine years ago, I'll go tomorrow. And at his funeral, there were so many people there, but none of them talked about the, the life group structure. None of them talked about how well he organized these different things, or how great of a preacher or visionary he was. They talked about how much he loved them. See, that's why people followed him. For me, there was a question that I struggled with for a really long time. And it's, why am I following God? Why God? Why out of all these other religions, why out of all these other things that I could be doing, why am I following God? And I really had to think back to myself and be, and be really critical. Is it because he promised me heaven? Is it because a few years ago he answered one of my prayers? Is it because he did some miracles in my life before? When I was 19 years old, in the middle of my searching for the answer to that question, God encountered me and he answered it. And it's going to sound so simple, but he answered it with just one sentence. He said, I want you to follow me because I love you. So church, that's the question that I want to ask you today. And I want to really ask you, do you believe that? Why do you follow God? Is it because he did a miracle in your life a couple years ago? Is it because he maybe answered your prayer of a few months back? Is it because you want to go to heaven? You see, if those are the reasons why you are following God, then those things are going to fade away. And when times really do get hard, when you're really in the depths of your despair and you try to rely upon those reasons for you to follow God, you are going to fall away. Because those things are, are not what Christianity is. Those things are not what the gospel is. Those things are not the reasons why Jesus Christ came here. You see, for the next few weeks, we're going to spend a couple weeks in Elijah's life, and we're going to see a few different parts of God's character. But today, what I want us to focus on is to see why we are here and why we're even doing any of this. Why do we pray? Why do we come out to church? Why do we, why do we call ourselves Christians? Because you see, if we don't answer this question of why, if you just pass over it and try to do everything else, then you're going to be stuck doing religion. And you'll never truly experience God. You see, in this passage here, the king of Israel was a king named King Ahab. And he was married to this woman named Jezebel. And you see, Jezebel was a woman who who hated God. She came from a country that hated God, and her people despised anything that had to do with God. And so when she married King Ahab, what they ended up doing was that they turned their goal to make Israel into a religiously pluralistic society. In other words, they did everything that they could to turn the Israelites away from God and to every other God that they could possibly send them to. And now, at the same time, there was a man named Elijah. And he was the last prophet at that time. King God, he, he sends him to King Ahab and to Jezebel. And he tells them to go to them saying this one thing, that there will be no more rain for the next few years. And so no rain comes, and there is this famine all throughout the land. And you see, it's not just the people who are suffering. Elijah is suffering, too, because it says in the first verse that we read that the brook has dried up, that there is no more water for him, that there is no more food. But you see, in the midst of this famine, God sends Elijah to this widow and her son, And through this widow, God shows who he is. Here in this passage, Elijah is called to a land called Sidon. And now, this is really, really strange. Because there were a lot of different people that could have helped Elijah. There were a lot of places that Elijah could have gone In fact, it would have made most sense if he stayed in Israel and yet God called him out to this place called Sidon. In Luke 4, Jesus, he's talking about this incident about Elijah and he says, look, there was a lot of widows in Israel. There was a lot of people all over, but God, he sent Elijah to this place on purpose. Why? What's important about Sidon? You see, Sidon was the country that Jezebel was from. What we know is that those people did not believe in God. In fact, they were against him. Not only that, she was this widow. And what that meant at that time was that she was extremely poor, and she was in the lowest part of the social class. So what we have is this person who is considered racially and ethnically dirty. This person had no religious background. This person was economically and financially nothing, and yet out of all the people in the world, God sends Elijah, the last remaining prophet, to Sidon so that she could save him. Why would God do this. And you see, this is the first characteristic of God, church. Is that God, He loves the oppressed. God, He loves the stranger. He loves those who are in poverty. He loves those who are marginalized. He loves those who are hurt. He loves those who are in the minority. And He gave His life for everyone. Regardless of your merit, regardless of your past, regardless of the things that you have done, regardless of, of all of those different things, he gave his life for you. And I know that for a lot of us, we are struggling with this. Because for a lot of us, we come from the most broken parts And we struggle with self-esteem and self-image and the world is constantly telling us that we're not good enough because we're constantly comparing ourselves to everybody else and we never have enough. We're never rich enough. We're never faithful enough. We're always in the minority. We're always hurt. We're oppressed. And yet God saves the widow And yet God sends the last remaining prophet in all of the land to this one person. You know, what I realized about almost every religion is that those gods will work for you on the basis of your performance. If you pray hard enough, then I'll work for you. If you go to church enough, then I will work for you. If you do this, then I will work with you. But you see, that's not our God. Our God is a God of grace. And it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. It doesn't matter if you were against him or what the world thinks of you. He offers you salvation. He offers you the greatest gift that you could ever think. You see, God, he sends the last remaining prophet to a complete outsider so that Elijah could save her and so that she could save Elijah. And in that moment, God allows flour and oil to overflow and both survive. See, God, our God, is a God of grace. But something happens after this. You see, both Elijah and the widow survive, but it says a little bit later that her son begins to get sick. And he ends up dying. And so she comes to Elijah, and she is in complete despair. And she asks, what happened? Why did her son have to die? Why did this little boy have to die? Is it because of her own sin? Because she knew about her past. She knew that she messed up. She knew about all the things that she had done. And so she was wondering, was God punishing her? And so she asked if this was a reminder or a punishment for all that she's done. And now, you see, Elijah is a prophet of God. And at that time, he knew God better than than anybody else right then. And yet, what we see is Elijah takes the boy upstairs. He looks to the sky, and he asks God the same question. He says, why did this happen? Elijah doesn't know either. What does this mean? This is difficult, but I'm going to do my best to explain. the widow in verse 12 she talks about God and she says as surely as the God as surely as God lives right and then in verse 1 if you go a little bit further up Elijah goes up to king Ahab and he talks about God he talks about the God he worships and he says i come from the God who lives you see both the widow and Elijah don't know why the boy died but it's because they don't know that God becomes more real in their life. Let me explain what, that, what I'm trying to say. Our God is a God who is alive. You believe that. You see, the difference between an idol or any other God and the God of the Bible is that idols are a projection of what we want idols are able to fit into our minds those other gods are able to fit within the grasp of our understanding and we're able to control them and they act in the way that we should believe you see an idol is not allowed to do something that you don't understand because an idol is something that comes from your mind but you see, our God is a living God. He is alive. Yesterday, he is alive. Today, he is alive. Tomorrow, he is an untamed God. He is a dangerous God. And the reason why he is dangerous is because we cannot ever contain him within our minds. We have no idea what he's going to be doing. If he can fit into our minds, then that means that we are God. God. And yet we are not God, because our timing is not his timing. Because what happens in this world, we can never fully understand. And so the only thing that we can ever do is to trust in Lord and trust in his timing and say, God, I don't know what's happening. I don't know about these different things. I don't know why my son died. I don't know about this cancer. I don't know about this accident. I don't know about this financial difficulty. I don't know why these things happen. But God, I know that because I can't contain you within my mind, because I know that I can't understand your ways, that makes you even more real. Because if you were able to fit Within in the grasp of my understanding, you would just be another idol. You know, this is where most people turn off when it comes to Christianity. Because, you know, the first half of what we talked about, that God is the God of grace. Yes, yes and amen, we can say that. Yes, God is a God who gives unendlessly, who loves unendlessly. But when you bring this characteristic of God into the picture, so many will leave. Because this this is an understanding that, yes, God is a God of grace, but he's a God that we also don't fully understand. And he's also a God who demands judgment. And so you see Elijah, he looks up to the sky and he asks that one question. Did did this boy die because of his sins and his mother's sins? He asked God that. And for us, if you do believe that God is a God of both grace and of judgment, then yes, absolutely, it makes sense that God would kill that child. That mother was against God that mother sinned again and again and again. She came from the same land, from the same thinking, from the same everything as Jezebel. And so there needs to be punishment for that sin. There needs to be a debt that needs to be repaid. But God, you see, he says no. Because the boy, he doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life. And so now the question becomes, why? Why would God save the boy? In verse 21, it says that Elijah stretched out over the boy. Now, when you read different scholars and different professors and commentators, there's so many different interpretations of why he was stretched out. We don't really know exactly why it says that Elijah stretched out. But you see, this word stretched, it's used in in a place in the New Testament. It's used in John 21 when Jesus is talking to Peter. And he says, Peter, someday you're going to stretch out your hand and people will take you where you don't want to go. You see, at that moment, Jesus was talking about his death. When Elijah stretches out, what he's doing is he's reaching out to die. When I was in college, I've talked about this before, but my pastor's daughter had just gotten cancer. And I remember he said that in that moment in in the hospital, he was crying out to God to take that cancer away and give it to him instead. He said he he reached out, and from the depths of his heart, he pleaded that God would give him the cancer instead, to not give it to his daughter, that, that he would take it. See, do you understand what God is doing here? He's telling them, he's saying, your son can't pay for your sins. Your son, his death is not enough. But you see, my son is going to pay for yours. My son is going to stretch out, and he's going to cry out, and he's going to take your death, and I'm going to give him death. My son is going to die, not yours. See, God is a God of grace, yes. He is a God of judgment, yes. Yes but he's also, and most importantly, he's a God who loves you. And the Bible says that he loves you so much that he gave his one and only son to die for you. Church, do you believe this? And you see, at the end of this passage, it says that the widow was saved, that salvation was brought to her. She says, now I know who God is. Now I really do believe in your message. But her salvation, it didn't come when she had enough flour and oil. You see, her salvation, her saying this, didn't come when the miracle happened. It didn't come when she survived the starvation. Her salvation didn't come when Elijah was talking about God. It says that she was saved when she saw the resurrection of her son. See, church, Jesus didn't come to teach a bunch of lessons or to give you morality lessons or anything like that. He came so that he could die for you and give his life for you. He came so that he could defeat death and be raised to life. You see, he came so that he could love you. He is our God, He is our Father, He is our leader. And so for me, I pray that Shining Star would grow to love Jesus even more. He is my God and and I will follow Him because I love Him and I pray that you would follow him, not for any other reason, not for any other thing, but simply because you know that he loves you and that he died for you and that he cares for you. So church, why do you follow him? Let's pray.